This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the night of April 3rd, 1968, a storm was brewing in Memphis, Tennessee. Lightning bolts lit up the sky. Tornadoes were sighted in the next county, and yet the ominous weather wasn't enough to deter 3,000 black citizens from gathering at Mason Temple. They squeezed through the front doors to hear the voice of one man. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped to the pulpit. At 39, he was the most celebrated and influential civil rights leader in America. But that night in Memphis, he was simply exhausted. However, the crowd had come to hear words of hope, and hope was what he would give them. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity, has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. It was the last speech he ever delivered. At 6 p.m. the following day, King was standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel when a shot rang out. The official story is that James Earl Ray, a 40-year-old escaped convict, was the lone gunman. Ray pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison without a trial. But years later, Ray claimed he hadn't acted alone, that he was, in fact, 
a pawn at the center of a dark conspiracy to assassinate Martin Luther King Jr. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the Paracast Network podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we're talking about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. This week, we're bringing you the official account of King's life and death, and the drawn-out search for his killer. Next week, we'll dive into the conspiracies surrounding James Earl Ray and investigate who else may have been involved in the civil rights icon's death. Martin Luther King Jr. was born into a nation deeply divided along racial lines. Though slavery had been abolished over 60 years prior, black citizens were far from being treated as equals, especially in the South. It was the era of Jim Crow, a sweeping system of city and state laws that segregated blacks from whites. The laws were designed not only to ensure the separate but equal doctrine confirmed by the Supreme Court, they went much further, ensuring that black Americans would be treated as inferior in the eyes of the law. In education, colored schools were often underfunded, and state colleges were strictly off-limits. In housing, black people were prohibited from living in white neighborhoods. Bathrooms, drinking fountains, and buses were clearly demarcated. And in politics, black people were intimidated at the polls and virtually shut out of holding public office. And if the state wasn't ruthless enough in its tactics, there was no shortage of white terrorists keen to remind black people of their place. A 2015 report by the Equal Justice Initiative determined that well over 2,000 black people were lynched in the South between 1882 and 1930. This was the country Martin Luther King Jr. was born into on January 15, 1929. The Kings were a middle-class family in Atlanta, Georgia. His father, Martin Sr., was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Martin Sr.'s father had been a preacher, as had his father's father. The pulpit was in Martin Jr.'s blood. Though Martin's parents provided a safe, comfortable home for their three children, there was no way to shield them from the reality of racism. At a young age, Martin's mother, Alberta, sat him down to deliver the talk, a discussion about the challenges and injustices he would face living in America. It's a talk frequently had in black households to this day. He also experienced racial hatred firsthand. When he was eight, he accidentally stepped on a white woman's shoe. She slapped him hard across the face and hurled a racial epithet at him in front of his mother. Though he witnessed and felt violence, Martin had none in him. When he was bullied at school, he took it, stoic and unflinching. He later said, quote, It was some part of my native structure, that is, that I have never been one to hit back, end quote. 
If hate was not in Martin's heart, curiosity and love of reading took its place. At the age of 15, he entered Morehouse College as a freshman. It was there he read Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. The ideas expressed in the book would have a profound impact on King's life as an activist and leader. He said of Thoreau's work, quote, I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good, end quote. If Thoreau launched King's philosophy of nonviolent protest, Mahatma Gandhi crystallized it. In 1950, while studying at Crozer Theological Seminary, King attended a lecture about the Indian leader and his methods, such as the Salt March, a 26-day march that kick-started the Indian independence movement. King began to see a path forward for the black struggle in America. However, at that time, he had neither designs nor ambitions to lead the movement for equality. On the contrary, Martin Luther King Jr. spent the early 50s earning his doctorate, marrying his wife, Coretta, and settling down in Montgomery, Alabama, to raise four children. His would be a quiet, religious life, following in his father's footsteps. That is, until one evening in December 1955, when a tired seamstress, sitting alone on a bus seat, changed the course of history. Rosa Parks was booked in a Montgomery jail for refusing to give up her bus seat to a white man. Her one request, besides a phone call, was for a drink of water. Naturally, the water fountain was marked whites only. Local black leaders saw an opportunity to challenge the racist law, and they seized it. The Montgomery Improvement Association chose none other than Martin Luther King Jr. to lead demonstrations. Though Dr. King's first instinct was to turn down the honor, his conscience got the better of him. He rushed home to share the news with Coretta, then sealed himself in his study to write his first speech as a leader of a movement, albeit a local one. He had little time to prepare as he was set to deliver it in a few hours. When he arrived at the church on Holt Street, he was shocked by the sight that greeted him. A throng of thousands cramming into the small church, overflowing into the street. Here was proof that Rosa Parks' act of civil disobedience had sparked something much larger than one city. It needed direction, and it needed a voice. King and his colleagues quickly decided the best way to combat the bus law was to organize a boycott. The black population of Montgomery, which overwhelmingly used the buses to get to work, would simply stop riding. It had the potential to backfire. If the city held firm, if the boycott dragged on for weeks and months, and if black citizens couldn't get to their jobs in all that time, the campaign could fall apart. But instead, something extraordinary happened. The community came together, organizing carpools, commuting on foot and horseback, and a number of white people volunteered to drive their cooks and maids to and from work. Not everyone in Montgomery was feeling so amicable. One night, while the King family was asleep, the telephone rang. Martin answered and heard a chilling voice on the other line. It said, quote, If you don't leave town in three days, we're going to blow up your house and blow your brains out. End quote. And the voice kept its word, at least half of it. Two months into the boycott, a bomb was hurled at the porch of the King house. Martin was not home, but Coretta and their seven-month-old baby were. Fortunately, no one was hurt. 
And though the assailant was never identified, it was the clearest sign yet that the campaign was making an impact. In the end, the bus boycott didn't last weeks, nor did it last months. It lasted a full year. But in that time, Dr. King managed to turn a local story into a national conversation. The seeds of a much larger movement were being planted in Alabama, and both the media and the government were taking notice. In November of 1956, leaders in the NAACP brought the case to the Supreme Court, which finally put an end to the dispute. The court ruled the bus segregation law was in violation of the 14th Amendment and therefore unconstitutional. It was over. The people of Montgomery had won. But for Martin Luther King Jr., the fight was far from over. His time on the national stage was just beginning. In early 1957, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Whatever the young minister had intended his life to be, its course was quickly being reset. This newfound fame brought Dr. King power, but it also brought him enemies. A second assassination attempt would come soon, in an unlikely place, from the unlikeliest of people. On September 20th, 1958, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. held a book signing in Harlem to promote his new memoir, Stride Toward Freedom. A fashionable black woman strode to the front of the line. She peered down at the reverend and asked, Are you Martin Luther King? He said he was. In response, the woman drew a six-inch razor-sharp letter opener from her bag and plunged it into King's chest. Pandemonium broke out, and the assailant tried to escape. She was quickly arrested and identified as Isola Curry, a Georgia native like Dr. King. She was later placed in a hospital for the criminally insane, apparently suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Martin Luther King survived the attack, but just barely. The doctors revealed the tip of the blade was lodged mere centimeters from a major artery. Any sudden movement could have closed the gap. In other words, one sneeze would have altered the course of history. He pulled through, soberly aware of the terrible price of change. But the change was just beginning. The events of the following years took the country by storm. Throughout the early 60s, demonstrators marched through city streets, while young activists held sit-ins in which they defiantly sat at diner counters reserved for whites. They protested merely by existing where they were told they couldn't. At one such sit-in in Birmingham, King was arrested, and not for the last time. While behind bars, he wrote Letter from a Birmingham Jail, a manifesto on the necessity of nonviolent protest. King's commitment to these principles of peace and justice was winning him the attention of influential minds, including President John F. Kennedy. In a televised address, the president put it bluntly, quote, The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated, end quote. King rode that wave of enthusiasm to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. On August 28, 1963, the Reverend stood before a crowd of 250,000 people stretching the length of the National Mall and delivered words that would reverberate through history. I have a dream that one day 
this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That moment, that speech, solidified King as a powerful voice for peace and justice. But while the world applauded, an incredibly powerful man saw something quite different. He saw a threat to the established order. This man had a vendetta and the means to make Martin Luther King Jr.'s life a waking nightmare. Coming up... We'll look at Dr. King's most formidable enemy, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. J. Edgar Hoover was a man who valued control. That's putting it mildly. As the founding director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Hoover ran his agency with the brutal efficiency of a dictator. He was an institution unto himself. And in the 1960s, his dedication to hierarchical order put him at odds with the civil rights movement, which sought to expand power to all the people. The main target of Hoover's suspicion was the increasingly public face of the movement, Martin Luther King Jr. The public acrimony between the two men would become the stuff of legend. It began in 1963, when Hoover secured authorization from Attorney General Robert Kennedy to wiretap King. This meant bugging his phone, his office, and the many hotels he stayed in. Publicly, President John F. Kennedy supported the civil rights movement, but this shows that the FBI and the Kennedy administration viewed King as a potential threat to national security. They were particularly concerned that communists had infiltrated his ranks and would harness the civil rights movement as a mouthpiece for propaganda. But with the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the ascendancy of his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, the political landscape changed dramatically. In Johnson, King had a direct line to the highest levels of government. Though the intimidating Texan president and the gentle preacher had their disagreements, they shared a common goal, 
the passage of the historic Civil Rights Act. Their relationship, along with King's criticisms of the FBI's sluggish response to hate crimes, presented further threats to Hoover's control. Never one to back away from a challenge, the grizzled FBI director went on the offensive. One day after the Nobel Committee announced its intention to award Dr. King the Peace Prize, Hoover took the rare step of holding a press conference. In front of the press, he mounted a full-throated defense of the Bureau's record on civil rights. He said, quote, In spite of some remarkable success in civil rights cases, some detractors alleged the FBI had nothing to do in this field, end quote. If the assembled journalists thought they were meant to read between the lines, Hoover quickly made his point clear. He pressed on, quote, In view of King's attitude and his continued criticism of the FBI on this point, I consider King to be the most notorious liar in the country, end quote. The shot had been fired. It would be followed by two far more insidious acts of intimidation. The first was an FBI wiretap recording, which spliced together audio of King having extramarital sex in hotel rooms. In an effort to discredit King as a moral leader, the Bureau distributed the tape among government agencies, with one copy even making its way to the Oval Office. The second tactic was a typewritten letter delivered to King's home. The note was anonymous and seemingly written in the voice of a disgruntled black man. In reality, it was written and sent by the FBI, and it was opened and read by King's wife, Coretta Scott King. The letter amounted to little more than a threat. It warned, quote, King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation, end quote. This threat came directly from J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, attempting to blackmail Dr. King into taking his own life. The vitality and promise of the early 60s was giving way to something darker, something deadlier, and Martin Luther King's friends would soon be outnumbered by his enemies. In April 1967, Martin Luther King was weighing the most difficult speech of his career. He had decided to denounce the war in Vietnam. The conflict in Southeast Asia had become a flashpoint for the generational divide of the late 60s. Anti-war sentiment was rampant in young activists, and the official stance of the government that victory was in reach seemed increasingly implausible. By spring 1967, the death toll had surpassed 10,000. The political capital Lyndon Johnson spent passing the Civil Rights Act was sorely needed by then. He had essentially staked his presidency on winning the war. Isolated and unpopular, Johnson turned to an old ally for support. But Dr. King could not give it. In fact, he turned down two meetings with Johnson in the Oval Office. He knew what he would hear. Sit down and don't speak up. Even his closest colleagues were warning him against speaking on the Vietnam War. They argued their movement must be distinct from the anti-war movement, that they were separate causes which required separate leaders. King wasn't convinced. True, he was no expert in international politics, but the Americans being shipped overseas were disproportionately black. 
How could he fight for equality at home if black men were being used as cannon fodder? On April 4, 1967, at the Riverside Church in Manhattan, King took the plunge. He said, quote, I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government, end quote. The blowback was swift and fierce. The New York Times, The Washington Post, Life magazine, and others ran long editorials chastising the reverend, stopping just short of calling him a traitor to his cause. The attacks not only blindsided King, they emboldened his enemies. The civil rights movement was a large tent, and not everyone inside agreed with Martin Luther King Jr. For the first time, there were whispers about a change in leadership. On April 23, 1967, a few weeks after Dr. King's controversial speech, there was a prison break at the Missouri State Penitentiary. It didn't make the nightly news. The state offered a meager $50 reward for the escaped inmate. The man in question didn't seem to matter to anyone. His name was James Earl Ray. He was 38 when he escaped. This had not been his first stint behind bars, but it had been his longest. The Ray family had a reputation as something of a redneck crime dynasty. James' father and uncle both served time for robbery, and they encouraged the young men of the clan to follow them in the same direction. James Earl Ray was the first of nine children, and from the start, he seemed predisposed to trouble. He was rarely at school, and when he did attend, he had very few friends. One teacher even described him as repulsive. In the late 40s, Ray joined the army and served two years in post-war Germany. His military career was short and blighted by fighting, thieving, and drunkenness. He spent three lonely months in the stockade before being dishonorably discharged. For all his misbehavior, Ray got at least one thing out of the army— he learned how to use a rifle. Over the next decade, Ray was in and out of jail for petty crimes and dime store robberies. In 1959, he stuck up a grocery store in St. Louis and was quickly arrested. In the end, he only managed to steal $120. Now he was facing a 20-year sentence in the state penitentiary. Just as Martin Luther King Jr. was beginning his ascendancy, James Earl Ray was stuck in a prison cell the world would transform without him. Unless he took matters into his own hands. On the morning of April 23rd, Ray gathered his few belongings and made his way to the prison kitchen, where several conspirators were waiting for him. These men helped Ray squeeze into a four-foot bread box, which was then loaded into a truck. The truck made its way across the compound, arriving at a tunnel checkpoint. As the engine idled, Ray lay curled up, listening, waiting to be discovered, but the truck rolled on. The guards didn't inspect the boxes. The first hurdle was cleared. Ray was out, but not free yet. When the truck was miles away, Ray popped the lid and scurried out of the box. It was do or die. He leapt out of the bed, tucking and rolling away from the road. The truck kept going. He had done it. He walked the rest of the day and into the night, keeping off the main roads. He looked up, marveling at a sight he had missed for seven years, a sky bright with stars. 
He eventually arrived in a Chicago suburb where he worked for six weeks at the Indian Trail restaurant under the name Eric Starvo Galt. Besides the false identity, he made an honest living. But soon, for no definite reason, Ray decided to move again to Canada. This set the pattern for Ray's life on the run, never staying in one place very long, assuming new identities and forging the necessary documents to go with them. He moved to Mexico, then New Orleans, then California, where he sought out a plastic surgeon to perform a rhinoplasty for $200 cash. When Ray returned to his cramped hotel room, he removed the bandage, took his numb nose in his hands, and pulled it in a completely different shape, one even the doctor wouldn't be able to identify. By this point, James Earl Ray barely existed. His identity was in constant motion, a spinning wheel of names, vocations, and addresses. Even his face had become a living mask. In the run-up to the 1968 presidential election, the country's identity was similarly up for grabs. White backlash to the civil rights movement was exemplified by George Wallace's third-party campaign. A former Alabama governor, Wallace made a name for himself as a strong opponent of desegregation. From the start, his campaign exploited white Americans' racial anxiety and pushed a return to Jim Crow laws. Wallace's message was deemed a fringe movement, but it found its fair share of devotees, James Earl Ray among them. He volunteered at the campaign's Hollywood office and got into a brawl outside the integrated Rabbit's Foot Club, defending Wallace to the progressive patrons. It's not clear when or why Ray became focused on disrupting the civil rights movement. Though his family's criminal history didn't involve hate crimes, it's hardly a stretch to consider that the rural, white, lower-class Ray family may have harbored some racist sentiments. Or his views may have been affected by the controversy and violence that was being stirred up throughout the country and blamed on Martin Luther King Jr. In July 1967, racial tensions finally boiled over in Newark, New Jersey. Newark was the first city in America to have a majority of black residents. It also led the nation in rates of substandard housing and took second place in crime. The people had had enough of the racism that kept their community in poverty. King watched helplessly as Newark's black citizens took a torch to the ghetto. The National Guard swept through the city, and the riots left 26 people dead. As he bore witness to horrendous violence, as he felt his friends and followers begin to doubt him, as he felt his powerful enemies closing in, Martin Luther King Jr. sank into despair. What could he possibly do to turn the tide? In early 1968, a short news item in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution caught King's eye. It was the story of two sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, Robert Walker and Echol Cole. Caught in torrential downpour, Walker and Cole sought refuge in the storage cylinder of the garbage truck they worked on. The machine malfunctioned, crushing them to death. On February 11th, over 900 of Memphis's sanitation workers went on strike. The walkout was organized by Pastor James Lawson, a close friend of Dr. King. Lawson urged King to come to Memphis in order to focus national attention on the strike. It was a worthy cause and a chance King couldn't pass up. 
Here was an opportunity to renew the promise of nonviolent protest, to show a fractured movement there was a better way forward. When Dr. King arrived in the city, he went straight to Mason Temple to lead a rally. Upon arrival, he was told that the expected crowd of 10,000 was not coming after all. Instead, 15,000 had come. As he addressed the assembly, King promised to lead a march straight through the heart of Memphis. He asked the people to join him, and they enthusiastically agreed. For a moment, he seemed to have successfully turned the tide, but the moment would not last. The march in Memphis was an unmitigated disaster. What began as a peaceful demonstration quickly devolved into King's worst nightmare. A militant youth group called the Invaders took over the march, smashing windows along the route and turning it into a looting spree. In response, the police beat, maced, and tear-gassed any protesters they could get their hands on. At the center of the chaos, Dr. King was quickly escorted away by city officials. At the end of the day, over 100 people were in jail, and a 16-year-old boy had been shot to death by a police officer. Holed up in the Lorraine Motel, King feared his enemies within the movement were right about him. The man of peace was causing more harm than good. At that moment, on the other side of the country, James Earl Ray was packing his bags. There was nothing unusual about his decision to strike out again. He didn't tend to stay in one place very long. But this move was different. This time, he didn't just have a destination in mind. He had a person. Specifically, he had a target. He packed all of his belongings in the back of a white Mustang and peeled out of the hotel parking lot. James Earl Ray was coming for Martin Luther King Jr. Up next, we'll look at the official story of what happened on April 4th, 1968. Now, back to the story. On March 29, 1968, James Earl Ray arrived in Alabama, hoping to find Martin Luther King Jr. The Reverend was not there, but the Aero Marine Supply Company was. Ray walked out of the sporting goods store with a Remington Game Master hunting rifle in hand, along with a Redfield telescopic scope and several boxes of ammunition. He now had a gun, but lacked a clear plan. He checked into an Atlanta hotel and scoured the newspapers for any mention of Dr. King. April 1st brought a report that King was returning to Memphis to hold a second demonstration, less than a week after the disastrous first attempt. That was all the incentive Ray needed to pack the rifle into his Mustang and hit the road again. On April 3rd, 1968, a storm was brewing over Memphis. Dark clouds rumbled with thunder as James Earl Ray rode into town. That night, Martin Luther King Jr. appeared at the Mason Temple rally. The 3,000 attendees hung on his every word, and though his speech was rousing and optimistic, the substance revealed a man who knew an end was coming. King's final message to his followers was to press on, even in his absence. Like so many revolutionaries before him, King had long guessed he would meet an early death. That night in the packed church, he shared a final message of hope. The next morning, Ray read about King's speech over breakfast. 
the newspaper included a photo of King standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. The door behind him was clearly marked 306. Ray spent the afternoon scouting the motel. There was a visible police presence. He would have to find a safer vantage point. He found it at a rooming house on 422.5 South Main Street. Ray checked in, and the manager showed him to room 8. It was a nice room with a kitchen, but the window faced away from King's room at the Lorraine. Claiming he didn't intend to cook and didn't want to pay for a kitchen, Ray was then taken to room 5B on the second floor. This one had a clear view of the neighboring motel, but as Ray scoped out the window, he realized he wouldn't quite get a clear shot. He needed a better view, but he couldn't ask for another room without arousing suspicion. So Ray walked down the hallway to scope out the shared bathroom. It was small and dingy, but the window lined up perfectly with room 306 at the Lorraine. Ray had found his spot. Inside room 306, Martin Luther King Jr. had a problem on his hands. The city government had issued a last-minute injunction against the planned march. King's aides asked what to do. He responded, quote, We will march on Monday. We cannot give in now. End quote. It was April 4, 1968, one year to the day since King spoke against the war in Vietnam. It had been a difficult year filled with hardship and bloodshed. The triumphs of the bus boycott seemed like a lifetime ago. King opened the door, stood on the balcony, and looked up. It was just before six in the evening. The storm clouds had finally passed. Seventy yards away, James Earl Ray was watching. He saw his opportunity, and he took it. He sprinted to the bathroom, bolting the door shut. He rested his rifle on the window, peered through the scope. There was a knock. Ray froze. He didn't breathe. After a moment, he heard footsteps receding down the hallway. He turned his gaze back to the crosshairs and aimed them just over King's head. On the balcony of the Lorraine, King looked down into the parking lot. He spotted Jesse Jackson walking past with another man, Jackson called up to King, asking if he remembered the man he was with, Ben Branch, a local saxophonist. King greeted Branch. He paused a moment, then said, quote, Make sure you play Precious Lord, Take My Hand tonight. Play it real pretty, end quote. And then he was shot. James Earl Ray had to escape. He exited the bathroom and hurried down the hallway, carrying only the rifle and his suitcase. Confused tenants stuck their heads out of their rooms, catching only a glimpse of the man as he sped past them. Ray's plan was to go directly to his Mustang and head for Atlanta. But the moment he stepped outside, he saw a nest of police cars down the street. There were no uniforms in sight, but seeing the cars was enough to make him panic. He dropped his gun and bag by the front door of the Knipe Amusement Company next door, rushed the remaining 60 feet to his car, and hit the gas. In an instant, he was gone. News of the assassination spread like wildfire. Shock and disbelief quickly calcified into anger. Washington, D.C., Chicago, Baltimore, and many more cities were engulfed in week-long riots. 
While black Americans rose up in rage, J. Edgar Hoover was probably feeling a little more complacent. The murder was technically a state matter under the jurisdiction of Tennessee's authorities. The legacy of surveillance, insinuation, and intimidation that made up King's FBI file was about to be closed until the president intervened. President Johnson personally directed Hoover to spearhead the manhunt for King's assassin. This was now the FBI's top priority. Ray's hasty decision to leave behind his rifle and suitcase proved to be a windfall for the investigators. They were able to trace the gun back to the Aero Marine in Birmingham, though naturally it was purchased under a false name. Still, the agents managed to find the next best thing, fingerprints. Matching those prints in the database would be painstaking work. Luckily, soon after, residents of the Capitol Homes apartment complex in Atlanta reported an abandoned white Mustang that had been sitting in their parking lot for a week. The FBI traced the license to Eric Galt of California. After conducting interviews in Los Angeles, the Bureau determined Galt didn't actually exist. The name appeared to be an alias of one James Earl Ray. Once the fingerprints confirmed his identity, the Bureau released an arrest warrant for Ray on April 19th, two full weeks after the assassination. They had a name and a photograph, but had no idea of his whereabouts. He was, in fact, in a bar in Toronto, Canada. Ray was nursing a beer when his face appeared on the television set. He had slipped across the border by train two days after killing Dr. King. Now, he once again needed to get out of Dodge, and he had a destination in mind, Rhodesia, an African country that had no extradition treaty with the United States. To get there, Ray would have to travel through Europe using a variety of fake passports and aliases. And he did just that, managing to slip through London and Portugal, committing a series of petty robberies to pay his way. On the morning of June 8th, two full months after the shooting in Memphis, Ray arrived at Heathrow Airport to board a plane headed to Africa. He very nearly made it through inspection, but his face caught the eye of Philip Birch, a Scotland Yard detective. Within minutes, Ray was sitting in a small police office. A pistol was found in his pant pocket, along with a few falsified passports. The weeks of travel and deception had left Ray a nervous wreck. He was cornered, and he knew it was over. Soon, the FBI and all of America would know as well. Ray was extradited to the U.S., He was staring down a possible death penalty. Eventually, on his attorney's advice, he pled guilty to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. On March 10, 1969, without ever standing trial, James Earl Ray was sentenced to 99 years in jail. But the question remains, why? Why did Ray, a middle-aged, petty criminal with no history of hate crimes, travel across the country to assassinate Martin Luther King Jr.? And why, years later, did Ray change his story and claim that he hadn't been working alone? Next week, we'll dig into our sole conspiracy theory, springing from James Earl Ray's own claims. A bounty was placed on King's head in 1964, and an entire network of powerful figures helped Ray plot the Reverend's murder. 
Was James Earl Ray a lone wolf who snapped? Or was he a pawn in an intricate plan to bring down the face of the civil rights movement? To his credit, Ray's conspiracy claims have a good number of supporters, including members of Martin Luther King's family. Join us next week as we try to unravel the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more conspiracy theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Will Ilgen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.